Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for this program. Thank you for joining us today. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club of California is a 118-year-old nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any opinions expressed here are those of the speakers. The Commonwealth Club produces about 500 programs a year, even during the pandemic. So you can head over to commonwealthclub.org or even specifically commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for additional lists of upcoming programs, as well as podcasts and video from past events. If you're watching us live on YouTube, use the chat box to submit questions for our special guest today. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao, the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you for joining us for this great program. Our guest today is Dr. Laura T. Murphy, who is a professor of human rights and contemporary slavery at the Helena Kennedy Center for International Justice at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK. She's the author of The New Slave Narrative, The Battle Over Representations of Contemporary Slavery, Survivors of Slavery, Modern-Day Slave Narratives and Metaphor, The Slave Trade in Western African Literature, and now her latest book, Freedomville, a 21st Century Slave Revolt in India, in which we will discuss today. Dr. Laura Murphy, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we begin with, you know, your own interest in, in just the subject and also, um, uh, I'm, I think I'm saying it wrong, but Azad Nagar or Freedomville? Azad Nagar. Azad Nagar. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So I, in general, my interest in um, contemporary forms of slavery started when I was in graduate school doing my PhD on the transatlantic slave trade. And I um, came across information, which included uh, a video about the people of Freedomville that we'll talk about today, um, that that made me realize that what I was studying, people who had been forced to work against their will, typically without pay, almost always under threat of violence, that those like those like uh, characteristics of slavery were in effect in contemporary capitalist society as well and all over the globe. That what I was studying in the past was not just a, a, a thing of the past, but that it was a thing of the present. And so I pretty radically changed the trajectory of my work. Um, I'm from the South, Southern, Southern Louisiana, and I felt a real commitment to recognizing not only historical slavery and the legacies of historical slavery, but also to work really actively to address any forms of slavery or forced labor that might be in existence today. So I shifted my work to the contemporary period. And since then, I've been um, working to understand the mechanisms by which um, capitalist society maintains systems of slavery all over the world. Um, and the people of Ajad Nagar, or Freedomville, as we translate it for the book, um, were a group of people who had been, uh, who had had a documentary made about them in 2000. For, um, because they had had this revolt, the successful revolt. And I learned about them in the very earliest days of my learning about contemporary slavery. And their um, experiences became sort of an animating force for me in, in, in thinking that we can do something, that people 
do have the agency to fight back against uh, contemporary forms of slavery. And so I became very interested in their story. And that's sort of the, the very beginning of my uh, interest in their, in their lives and their experiences. Well, in this hour here together, we're going to get into a lot about Freedomville and, and the story of what happens there and what is happening there. But I kind of want to do the big picture first, because as you mentioned, you know, finding out just what is going on around the world, how many people are still in, in conditions of slavery. Um, so set it out for us. How many people are we talking about? Where is this found? What types of slavery is this? Is it, is, is it the kind of slavery people would look at and say, that reminds me of what I learned about the American South? Or would they, you know, are they thinking in terms of Roman Greek? I mean, what, what, what is actually going on around the world? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking that. You know, there are a number of different bodies that create estimates for the number of people who are enslaved around the world. One estimate suggests that maybe there are 40 million people enslaved around the world right now. Um, this includes a number of different kinds of forced labor. It includes people who are um, who are in conditions of chattel slavery, like we knew from the from the 19th century in the United States, people who, um, who are transgenerationally enslaved by dint of their race or ethnicity or position in society. Um, they're born into it and they're forced to work their entire lives and their children's lives, et cetera. There are also experiences like we're going to talk about today where people are bonded laborers. So somebody takes out a debt, which bonds them to the person who gave them the loan. But because they're not, they're not, they're enumerate, they don't understand numbers, they don't understand math, their, their interest on their loans keep growing. The, the person who is um, holding the debt tells them, oh, well, we added a little bit more because you're staying on our land now, or we're adding a little bit more because we gave you extra rice, or we added a little bit more because you needed money for your children's medicine. And so the debt keeps piling up and people never get out of debt. In the case of Freedomville, the people had had been transgenerationally indebted to the same family. Their grandparents had been indebted and they were never able to work off the debt. And so we see that as a form of enslavement that people can never ever walk away from that experience. Um, at least that's what they think, right? Until something like what we're gonna talk about today happens. Um, there are also people who are you know, enslaved in domestic servitude, forced to, to work in people's houses, people who are um, who are forced uh, laborers in the sex trade, people who are forced laborers in any number of of of, um, of industries. I used to say, you know, I, I'm a teacher and I can't imagine that teaching would be something that you could could force someone to do. And then there was a case in my very own state of Louisiana in which uh, Filipino teachers were brought to Louisiana and they were not paid, not given their visas, not allowed to freely move and not allowed to walk away from their jobs until they found somebody to help them get out. So they're just they're just a wide variety of industries in which someone can can, you know, be forced to do the work or not be paid and be be held um, sort of held in captivity without the ability to walk away. And that's what we're talking about. It's really about people who can't walk away from a job. It's not just a bad job. It's not a low-paid job. It's about jobs where people believe that they cannot walk away. And you, you set this up kind of talking about various forms of capitalism around the world using this. Would you also throw in something like North Korea, a system where kind of the whole country kind of seems to be in an enslaved situation? Yeah, absolutely. I think North Korea is a, is a good example of like an extraordinary system of of, of, of people who are enslaved, uh, not everyone, of course, in the country, but also, you know, I look at it in a place like China, but, you know, 
a lot of this is undergirded by the capitalist system. People are producing in North Korea and in China and Western China and Xinjiang province, for instance, they're producing goods for export to the rest of the world. Um, and we are complicit in purchasing our, you know, our, you know, T-shirts from fast fashion that we don't pay attention to where it came from. And yet when you buy a shirt for two dollars, you know something is wrong here, right? You can't transport a shirt for $2. And so how is it that we're getting these products for so cheap? And this is because it, our system is not regulating the downward um, spiral of lack of regulation that goes to the ends of the supply chain, which might end up in North Korea, which might end up in far Western uh, China. And, and so we, we kind of ignore the labor that's going on perhaps in India because we, we can't see it and we'd rather not know. And so this is all sort of under, uh, the, not every form of enslavement, not every experience of enslavement undergirds the system of capitalism, but a lot of it does. It really is feeding into our supply chains um, and, and making some people's lives in the rest of the world quite easy um, because we don't ask a lot of questions about where our goods come from. Well, we know uh, in this book, you know, there's a there's a group of people who revolt and, and that's um, uh, in some ways, right, good news. But before we get to that, let's back up and talk about Freedomville and give us some you know, historical context. And although we're talking about, you know, the contemporary or modern times, as far as this revolt goes, uh, the coal people had been enslaved for generations and generations and generations. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So the coal people are a group of uh, folks who are called tribal people or Adivasi in, in India. The Adivasi people are basically indigenous people of India who are practically outside of the caste system. They are um, th some of the poorest people in India. They, um, they are not integrated into like social structures are in there. They, they are largely unemployed. They've been dispossessed of their land. And for centuries, um, various rulers of India, but also colonial government um, of, of the British have, have dispossessed the coal people and other Adivasi people of their land and of their rights. And so many of them traditionally were forest dwellers. They lived on um, the wood and the berries and the foods and the fruits of the, of the forest. But through successive generations, they've been pushed off their land as people turned it into farmland or, you know, made money from whatever it was that the the uh, the, the coal people or the Adivasi people were making their livelihoods off of. And so generation after generation has seen coal people fight back, push back, saying, no, we won't um, we won't stand for this. But generation after generation, the government is more powerful. They're able to bring out people who can put down whatever um, resistance the Adivasi people might have. Um, and and it and over time, it came to be that. Uh, coal people, many coal people became enslaved to the rich and the powerful of the region. Um, they would often take out a debt, like we were talking about before, take out a debt um, or lose their land to people who say, well, now you have to work to live on the land that you used to, you know, have for your own. And so so they would be forced to work and and successive generations of scholars and um you know, religious figures and colonial government um, researchers and different people have, have gone and seen this and witnessed it and said explicitly, this is slavery. 
the people are generation to for, for like 200 years, people have gone in and said, this is absolutely you know, a system of slavery whereby people who used to have land and used to have livelihoods here are now in, indebted or somehow, um, you know, just required by the, the rich people in the area to, to work for them. And so, um, so when we get to the late uh, 20th century, early 21st century, this is still a problem. Despite the fact that slavery and, and debt bondage are both illegal in India as in the rest of the world, um, there are there are people like the coal people, the people I'm going to talk about today or that I'm talking about in the book, who aren't really in touch with like what's legal and what's not. And nobody's out there telling them what's legal and what's not. And they they believe because their grandparents and their parents had all been indebted and enslaved to the family, um, the, the richer families in their area, the land holding families, that they they have to be, they have to work for that family. They don't believe anything other than the fact that they owe these folks their work, their entire lives worth of work. And so by 1998, that's what the people in the book I, I, you know, I'm writing about think. They think, well, there's, there's nothing we can do about it. We just have to keep working. We owe it to them. This is our place in life. And there are many people around the world who have that same ex- experience. And specifically, what was their life like? So take us through kind of like a week of their life. I mean, are, is everyone working in the mines? Is, is how, how much of the day are they working? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's the, yeah. So, so the people in, um, in, in, in San Barsa, this area is called San Barsa. <clears throat> so the people in San Barsa who are Adivasi are working in, largely in rock quarries. So they go into um, a, like what, what is sort of like a vast pit and they, um, they just, they have rock tools and they hammer all day at these rocks. And they start at the age of young children starting to work, hammering or carrying these rocks um, to, you know, trucks to be delivered elsewhere, to be made into roads, into cement and things like that. And they're they're basically taking stone tools, hammering away at rocks and turning them into gravel. We have machines that do this. But in this region, in the, you know, in uh, like 20 years ago, folks we're there in, in, you know, sweating. It's a hundred degrees outside. It's really hot there. It's a real, and there's no shade in these vast quarry um, fields and they're just hammering away. And sometimes, you know, some of them would be asked to go and work in the fields, you know, to do agricultural work when the seasonal labor was needed there. Some of them worked in the households of the land holding families who are higher caste than they are. Um, but mostly what they do all day, you know, into the evening is hammer away at these rocks. It is backbreaking work. Um, it is, again, like I said, work that we use machines to do um, in most of the world and, and in India, India now today. But and they they eat very little. They eat two meals a day at most. They're basically eating grain turned into little chapati, you know, uh, breads. They they have uh, there, I've, I've rarely seen people in this area eat a vegetable, much less meat. Um, and so, and they, they are very much um, at the, at the mercy of, of the weather. So if there's a drought, they have even less food. They get paid a little tiny bit by the people for whom they work, but it's not enough really to keep them going. So they're always trying to plant a little something here or there, but the place where they're allowed to live 
is always the wasteland is the area that's the rockiest the desertiest desertiest is that a word um but the most barren <laughs> the most barren land the driest land and so they have very little um to eat they're they tend to be very thin they tend to be uh uh they're they're vulnerable to illness the the rock quarry mining that they do uh puts up a lot of silicon in, into the air, silica in the air. And so silicosis is an issue. Many people die of silicosis from breathing all of the um, particles that come from the rock mining. It's an extremely difficult life. And um, and they're living in, the people I'm talking about in, in Freedomville and in, in San Barsa are, are in the poorest region of, of India. And, and so they're very, very vulnerable to all these kinds of hardships forced labor, illness, uh, lack of education for the kids, lack of um, good land to grow their own food, lack of opportunity. So that's that's that was their lives before they they decided they had to revolt. Oh, and let me let me add, and this is not insignificant. They were also subject to all kinds of abuse. You know, the the land holding uh, people, whatever their will or whim might be. They had to they had to submit to it. So one one person I talked to said, if they came into my house and told me to stand up, that I should never sit in their presence, I had to stand up. If they told me to sit down, I had to sit down. If they told me to go, I had to go. If I told me to come, I had to come. And they they talk about um, they they at at the time in in 1998 when they started to learn about even the possibility of freedom, there was one particular man who was uh who they call an army man who was employed during part of the year but not employed during another part of the year and when he was in town everything got worse he you know abused the people physically sexually and he was known you know around the town as a as as a drunk and that he was he was abusive and everyone was terrified of them and so there have been several cases of of situations where women had been raped or children had been chased after um they one young woman uh resisted his uh advances and he set fire to her house and so they were living uh, and she died she died in the fire and so they were living in the most most extraordinary um, set of circumstances, like really horrific violence um, was being enacted on them every day. And they felt like they had to take it, like they had no choice. And what would you say would, was their life expectancy? Mm. Easily, you know, 40 years old. Like people were, yeah, people, uh, people in that region do not have a, a very long life expectancy in general. It's lower than, um, you know, the average uh life expectancy but a lot of a lot of people uh, a lot of, of children died young but also um people died of silicosis and people also it's hard for me sometimes to tell how old people are because these are folks who are out in the sun all day every day you know and who are doing backbreaking work so um i think in general people aged a lot more quickly there was always sort of jokes about how people and, and their jokes, you know, how I looked younger than they did. Um, but, it, you know, it's not funny at all, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, because a lot of them were aged based on the, the real or looked aged because of the, the real dire circumstances they lived in. Let's talk about resistance and, yeah. you know, and because um, as a human being, I can only ask this question. Uh, based off of that. And, you know, there's so much violence, there's so much oppression, one can only take that uh, until they want to fight back, let's just plainly put it. And it's not that the coal people 
didn't fight back. There were moments of resistance throughout many generations of this type of oppression, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think one of the questions that people often ask me when I talk about people who can't walk away from their jobs, uh, they'll also often say, well, you know, why don't they just walk away? Why don't they just leave? Um, why don't they just fight back? Why don't they pick up a stick and beat the person that they've been working for? And the answer is complex. You know, I think that one of the things that that most importantly came out of my conversations with the folks who tried to con like the sort of grassroots organizers in the region who tried to convince the coal people that they had a right to leave um, was the idea that there are people who don't have the idea of freedom. Right. That they don't have the idea that they have the right to freedom. And so they have to train them to to not fear freedom, freedom from the fear of freedom, essentially. And and that is not to say that 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 people, when introduced to the idea that they can be free, don't desire it or even that they don't have the agency for it. But that but that if after generations or even if your whole life you've been told you can't walk away from this, this is your place in life. There is a massive psychological shift that has to be made for you to understand yourself on different terms. And, and that really came about for a lot of the people in Freedomville when grassroots organizers started coming into town and saying, hey, uh, you know, this is illegal. You, sorry, you can't be, um, you, it's illegal for this, the, the landholders to, to force you to do this work. And, and, and people like Ron Paul, one of the main uh, people in the story that I talk about, really didn't believe them at first and also thought, you know, these folks are crazy and also they're probably dangerous. It's probably dangerous for me to even talk to these folks. And they, you know, when they talk to grassroots organizers, it's true. Landholders came in and said, what are they telling you? Don't believe them. Sometimes even got into physical altercations with the coal people to try to prevent them from being sensitized to their own inherent freedom. But Eventually, they start to see that there are other communities around who are are taking advantage of this opportunity um, with the grassroots organizers, people who are just, you know, who live down the road, you know, maybe 30 minutes who are coming in and saying, hey, look, you can not only um, be free, you don't have to work for these people, we will we will help you to secure um, opportunities for yourself and your children when you leave, because this is the other thing. Even if you get the idea, even if you have like a, a sense of your own freedom, you have to also have something to turn to afterwards. These folks have never been outside of a five kilometer radius of their houses. They don't have an education. They don't have another job opportunity. Their houses are on the land of the landholder. Where are they going to live? What are they going to eat? How are they going to take care of their children? These are the kinds of questions that keep people working day to day. Um, and, it, you know, don't think that the landholders don't know this, right? And so they, there's no opportunity for them. And this is as true in India as it is in the United States. A person who's being forced to work in the United States is also thinking, well, what the hell kind of job am I going to have if I walk away from this situation? Where am I going to sleep tonight? If I sleep on the street, it's more dangerous. I might as well stay here. Right. So this is a really complex calculus. Freedom is right. And we I think we take it for granted. But people who are enslaved do not take it for granted. And they, they know that it's not simple. It's not something that you just wake up the, one day and say, well, then let's be free. You know, I'm free. I'm innately free. Let's just do this thing. No, it's, it's really complicated and it's really dangerous. But in 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 Sambarsa, what happened was that these 
these grassroots organizers were kind of going around and doing what I call gossip organizing. They will kind of whisper, you know, notions of freedom in the ears of people who are, who've been working for these landholders for years and years and years, generations. And they say, okay, this is, this is illegal. You don't have to live like this. And then they say, well, what will we do if we don't? And then they start helping them to save money, whatever little bits of money they might have. They start helping them to save food away. They start telling them, okay, maybe you can try to, next time there's an election, maybe elect someone from among your people. Cause look, there are many more of you than there are of them. So what about electing one of your own? Well, what else can you use? Well, maybe we can help you get a lease to your own quarry. And yep, it's still backbreaking work. It's still horrifically bad, you know, for your health, but you know how to do it. Right. And so we get, how about we help you get a lease to your own land and you basically take back the means of production and you can sell your own rocks on the marketplace. And if you're sick, you can stay home. And if you, um, if your kid, uh, you, you can send your kid to school instead of sending them to the quarry. And so you, you work for yourself. How about that? And that started to happen. They started to help people get tiny leases, really tiny little leases, save up some money, got donors, international donors to input some money into the system and got people their own leases. And this, then people start whispering. So one person goes to another neighborhood and says, my kid is in school. And the other ladies are like, your kid is in school. How did your kid get in school? And so then they're like, well, we've got this lease. And so people start whispering and they start passing the word and like on the lower frequencies, everybody's learning about how you get your own lease, how you start saving up a little tiny bit of money that you might get your hands on, how you, um, and how you connect with the, the, the grassroots organizers. So they're, they're doing that. And, and whispering amongst themselves and, and building up one another's confidence and sense of freedom and agency and capacity to be able to have something when they walk away. And that, so that's sort of what was happening in, in, um, in Sambarsa when, uh, when, they, when they decided to have this basically a revolution. This might sound weird to ask about this, but it's understanding the, 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 the psychology, the mentality of the people who are doing this forced labor is one thing. What What is the psychology of the landowners? I mean, it's easy to just say, you know, well, they're exploiting the, the labor. But I mean, to, to go through those steps of cruelty, to, to continue this, because they too continue this generation after generation after generation. And what what was that? Because there are other ways to run a, a, a mine, like you said. They could, <laughs> they could do... Right. Uh, Mechanization. They they could sell the land. They could develop very whatever. little. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, pay the minimum wage, which is right. you know, not even a dollar a day. Right. There, there uh, are there are alternatives. So what? Describe kind of what there. Or was this purely a matter of power and 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 kind of caste privilege? I mean, what what are we seeing? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. That I, I think this is an important part of the book. Is that I I really felt it was incredibly important for me to also talk to the landholders and to ask them, you know, what were they thinking and, and what was their response and, and where were they at on this issue? And, you know, I, I think this is important because a lot of times when we talk about slavery or we talk about human trafficking or but forms of forced labor, I think the go-to is to think of the people who are the slave holding community people as, um, as evil. It's real easy to just say they're evil, but 
generations, whole families of evil? Like, what, what does that mean? Like, what does evil even mean? And I, it is my it is my firm belief that when we just assign uh, oppression to evil, we, in a lot of ways, we just exonerate it. We, we don't delve into it. We don't think about how it functions. How does oppression actually function? So if we just say it's evil, then we don't have to think real hard about it. And if we don't think real hard about it, we can't stop it. And so, like, who's stopping evil? Like, right? So, um, so in talking to people who were, you know, of the of the the landholding caste in this region, I learned that you know they too had spent their whole lives being told, believing that the coal people didn't have freedom, that they didn't deserve freedom, that they weren't made for freedom, that they couldn't survive without them, that they were in fact quite dependent. There was a whole paternalistic narrative about how, and this is familiar to us from 19th century American slavery as well, that that in fact, without the upper caste people, the coal people would just starve. They would not be able to survive. And so for generations, they had been told that they were the protectors of the coal and that by keeping them in this system, they were actually helping them. Now, not everybody was doing this for any kind of beneficent cause, right? They, you know, there was a wide spectrum of, of people who were in this class of, of, of landholders who, who have people working for them, who run the gamut from people who think that what they're doing is good for people to someone like the army guy who is out there just having his will with anyone he wants. And, and I met people who, who ran the gamut of that. Um, and it's, it's an interesting thing to look into the face of what people consider evil, right? And reckon, and see a person there, a person who's also conditioned by the context in which they were raised. Um, and I, you know, we'll talk about this later. I didn't get to meet the very worst, uh, the very worst offender, but I met someone who was his cousin, for instance, who um, is now the the town mayor, essentially the re- little area, the village mayor. And um, he is someone who, who thinks is still has this sense of paternalism that, you know, it's his responsibility in some ways to help these people, you know, the coal people, it's still a condescending position, but it's not the kind of like wild exploitative um, vision of the world that you would expect going into talking to someone who has for his entire life had people working for him without paying for them, paying, paying for their work. I mean, and I also talked to somebody else who, um, who told me that, that, you know, things just weren't as good. I should mention that because of a bunch of, um, because of these rebellions that happened in the late 90s uh, and the early aughts, um, because of those rebellions, but also because of a series of government incentives programs and entitlement programs, a lot of uh, the kinds of forced labor that were happening in that region aren't happening now. And there are lots of programs to ensure that people get paid the minimum wage, which is meager. Um, but they're, you know, to ensure that people are getting paid minimum wage. And there are people from among that landholding caste who very much 
lament those changes, who think that this has been bad for everyone, that this is bad for them because they've lost the people who've worked with them, but they've also lost that relationship where they, you know, they used to loan them money and therefore they would be okay, but now they won't loan them money because they make minimum wage and therefore, uh, you know, they don't have any relationship with them and they can't be sure that they'll pay them off back anymore. It's, it's a mythology that, 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 that this group of people has come to believe about themselves and about their role in the world and about their relationship to the, the Adivasi people. Um, it's, and it's, it's untrue, but that, that kind of thinking, that paternalistic thinking still pervades uh, many of the ways people talk about their relationship to the Adivasi people, even today, after all of the changes have happened in the last 20 years. The other side to that question is also understanding, you know, the psychology of a group of people who, you know, stand up for themselves or go through a, a revolution. And then, and then what happens? I want to read um, something from, or uh, yes, I want to read a little bit from your book here. Uh, and it's right when you came back from Freedomville. But after years of learning about the Freedomville revolt, how did I miss the most critical dynamic in securing their freedom? a factor so central to all those other famous slave revolts, the violence. When I returned to the United States after visiting Freedomville, I obsessively rewatched the Free the Slaves video. I reread the interviews I had tra transcribed myself. There wasn't a single mention of a murder. And so I think it's very important to go back and have you talk about, you know, this little piece that I read. Um, because that incident, we, we, we haven't talked about it. We, we, yeah. you know, let's go back to that. Yeah. So the, the coal people, this, this group of Adivasis in this, in this one little region became somewhat famous because they, um, you know, a number of different, uh, communities took back the mine and, um, and were able to send their kids to school. But this one group of people, um, in this little town that I went to, to visit, they had had a big rally. They had decided we're gonna vote in our own people into the, the town council office or into the, the mayor's office, as I was describing before, as a village head. We're gonna vote our own guy in and we're gonna, we're gonna get a lease at, for, to our own mine, Rock Quarry, and we're gonna, we're gonna win the day, we're gonna be free. And they did. They successfully did that. There was a there was an altercation and um, and, they, you know, some people ended up in jail and it was complicated. But like the the anti-slavery establishment essentially took up their story because they really did fight back and um, and get their their own lease of their land, send their kids to school. There was a documentary made about this little village um, and how they had um, won their own freedom. And it was a story about, about the agency of people who are enslaved and how they themselves, we don't have to have these sort of top-down mechanisms for creating freedom for people, that people go out and fight for their own freedom. And that was an important story. And it's one of the things, like I said, that motivated me to do this work at all. But, um, you know, we always talked about that story as a, as a nonviolent revolution. And, um, and in fact, the documentary that was made about them was called The Silent Revolution, and it celebrated the nonviolence aspect of their revolution. It's grounded in Gandhian politics, et cetera. And that was an important story. But I went back to meet these folks in 2014, folks I had been writing about, thinking about, teaching about for a decade. And 
when I went to meet them, a whole different story unfolded. I sat down with people in the community um, and they started telling their story. And, and the grassroots organizers had really tried hard not to get me to go to Freedomville at all. And this, I had to cut a section of the book out where they just take me from village to village to village. And I learned about all these other people who were, um, who were enslaved and who had fought for their freedom, et cetera. And I kept being like, wait, when do we get to the people I'm trying to talk to? When do I get to see Ron Paul? When do I get to see Choti and Sumara and all these folks I've been reading about and hearing about and learning about? And they kept taking me to other villages, days of other villages. I was getting angry, actually. <laughs> when can I go to see them? And when I finally met them, um, uh, we sat down and we started talking and they quickly started talking about the day of the revolt. And this extremely old lady, I mean, just tiny, broken old lady started talking. And I had a translator, which makes it very difficult. Um, to understand what's going on. And it's not the kind of research I typically do. Um, but in this case, I, I wanted to learn about their story. And so I have a translator translating for me and she starts talking. She's hacking her hand like this. And I keep asking, what is she saying? What is she saying? What, what is going on here? And finally, it turns out she's saying, and we beat and we beat and we beat them. And um, she's making this hand gesture. I keep asking, like, what is she talking about? And it turns out that, that the people in, in this area had gone to their big rally. They had, um, they had talked about having an election and voting in somebody from their own community. They had talked about getting leases to their own land. They had had a picnic. Everything was good. And then they were getting ready to walk away to go back home. And the, um, the, really, the really mean army man, uh, his name is Varindra Paul, um, Varindra comes up and um, says, it starts to, to mess with the women as they were walking back and starting to like, punch at them. And some people say a gunshot was shot off and like people start to fight. Now, what I learned when I went back, I'd always known that there was a, an altercation. There's always like, there was a bit of a fight, a struggle. And there was often like sort of a passive voice and in the melee, someone was killed or someone had died. Um, and the way people had understood it was that, you know, there were some rocks thrown and maybe somebody got hit and there was an accident kind of thing. No, these folks tell me when I get there after, you know, 15 years of telling their story that they had brought their hammers, their rock crushing hammers and poles and sticks to the meeting. Cause they knew that this guy was going to come and try to start a fight. And they intended to end the fight today that their plan was that they were going to kill these people and they were done with it. And it was always plural. Like we did this and we did that. And I'm looking at this old lady and I'm thinking, surely she didn't kill anybody. And surely they're talking about dreaming of killing someone. Oh no, right? No, these folks went to this, this event carrying their stone tools with the expectation that there would be a fight and that they were going to win this time. And they far outnumber, like I said, they far outnumber the landholders. And so it was a very different story I was hearing. And they were saying, oh, no, 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 we murdered him. We totally killed that guy. We meant to kill him. And we, we maimed several of his other, you know, buddies. And we were ready to do whatever it took to get our freedom. And, you know, like I said, they go to, they go to jail. Eight, eight men go to jail for it for several months. The people who are from that village know immediately that there will be a price to be paid. So they run into the woods. Um, one young boy I talked to who's uh, probably about 20 now said that he, well, no, he would have been, he must, gosh, he must be like 25. But he said he was a young, a, a very young kid, like 
five years old at the time. And he ran into the woods that night because he thought he was going to be killed. And everyone did. Everyone thought they're coming for us. They're going to come with guns and we will be, we will all be killed. Um, and they knew, they knew this was coming because they, they intended to, to go and, and win the fight this time. But it was still a very terrifying time for them because, again, where were they going to run? What were they going to go to? So they all spread out and went to different families' houses where they all had very little for quite a long time until grassroots organizers helped them get out of jail. Um, yeah, I don't know where to start. Let's stop and start. I mean, it's such an interesting story. Oh, but the, 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 about the violence. I mean, the, the, the thing that's important is that here was a situation where we had understood this to be a nonviolent revolution when in fact it had been a plotted violent revolution. And we had, we had all missed that. We had all been thinking completely wrongly about what happened there. And how does that kind of play into popularly known and, and kind of even uh, stuff that's lauded as being nonviolent when it really couldn't have come in, in other words, not just this incident, but kind of that that's, you know, the, the ideal is Rosa Parks quietly coming home from work and riding the bus. Mm-hmm. It was, she wasn't violent, but that was planned. Because yeah, she, we she also know Rosa Parks a... was much cooler than that, too. <laughs> right. right. But yeah. I mean, I mean t- talk a bit about that whole kind of fetishization of the nonviolent uh, for situations yeah. that where, where that fetishization only helps the people who are perpetuating the violence or the or the oppression. Right. And this is one of the big takeaways uh, from this, uh, from from talking to the people in in Ajit Nagar. They they end up naming their town two things. One, hullable, which is the word for strike and to raise our voices there. So the thing that they did was have a strike. Um, You know, they had a number of strikes, um, which they called hullable. And they named their town hullable to commemorate that um, that strike. But they also named their village Ajit Nagar which means Freedomville. And so these, these two things are commemoration of their fighting back um, and, that, and that are a constant needling of the people in the area to remind them of that moment of violence. And yet everyone sort of erased it for the public picture. And, you know, there are a lot of good reasons. We can talk about why they may have done that, why people in the U.S., you know, the nonprofit um, groups might have done that. But, you know, the the thing that we realize when we start to think about about violent revolution is is how often we say things i i constantly hear hear pundits and politicians and intellectuals say well there's no excuse for violence you can just type in google i did it the other day type in no excuse for violence they're just they're just tons and tons and tons of politicians are out there like there's no i really understand the concerns of you know the black lives matter movement but there's no excuse for violence And I think what this is like really pointedly showing us is that there is every excuse for violence. There's every reason why people who for generations have been um, the victims of violence do at some point break and say, look, that's it, because they've tried all of your 
official channels. They've gone to government officials. They've tried to get their entitlements. They've tried to have their own life. They've tried to be free without a revolution. They've tried to um, submit police reports. They've tried to complain about the violence. They've tried to, you know, get uh, other jobs. They, you know, they've tried all these, they've tried sending their kids to school. They've tried, you know, they tried all these different things that are the official channels that we all say, this is the way you know, or they've tried sitting quietly or having a strike or just taking a day off of work to show you what it's like, you know, when we, the workers don't come out. But what is that met with? It is continuously met with more violence. And so, so here are people, and this is about this, I think this is about violent revolution all over the world. You know, we, we want to say, oh, well, they shouldn't burn down this, or they shouldn't loot that, or they shouldn't steal this, or they shouldn't fight back in this way. They should, they should use the channels of power that are, that are available to them. They're not available, right? They're simply not available. And, and they meet that day after day, trying to resist in the official ways that people want them to. And so, you know, in the case of, of the people of Ajad Nagar, who took back their freedom, they tried getting a lease without it. They tried saying, please don't beat our children. They tried filing police reports that never got, you know, got to see light of day. They, they tried all those things and they tried for generations. And this day at this time with this man who was extremely violent, they decided enough was enough. And, and when we say, you know, Oh, let's, let's not talk about that violent part. We also don't, we don't recognize that violence is sometimes a part of that equation. We, we essentially act as if violent revolution is irrational when it is probably the most rational response I can imagine, right? It's, it is a clear, you know, tit for tat, but it's also just, they've tried every rational response and this is yet another one, right? And we also say, well, here are all these, you know, the state has a right to to commit violence against them. The landholders end up having a right to commit violence against them all the time. Nobody stops them. The only people who have no right to violence are these most oppressed, most marginalized people. And I think that's, I'm only, I'm thinking square words. Um, I think that's garbage. Um, <laughs> it's completely, it's completely, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it reinforces oppression. It, it, it reinforces the power of people who hold, hold the right to violence. And I, it's, it's absolutely wrong. And so, so it also makes it so that we can't respond to the consequences of that violence because it is, it is the case that many times when there are violent revolutions or violent protests, they are met with even more extraordinary violence. And if you can see that and predict that, you may be able to cut it off. You may be able to put a barrier around it. You may be able to um, to ensure that people get the entitlements that they're fighting for, that they get what they're asking for. Because what, because what happened um, in Ajad Nagar was that in Freedomville was that folks got momentarily the right to a lease. They got the right to send their kids to school. But as soon as international eyes looked away, they had their entitlements taken away. They didn't get everything that everyone around them got because they had been the people who committed this violence. And so the support system that needed to be in place longer for them, because they were the ones who had been accused of the violence and been involved in the violence, it just dried up because no one faced the reality of the 
aftermath of that violence. And no one really thought, well, okay, we know from human history that often there's a great crackdown on people who respond uh, with violent protest. And so what do we need to do to stop that? Like, we didn't ask the question, what do we need to do to stop that cycle of violence? Just like, okay, well, okay, that's how it works, you know? And so ignoring the violence and ignoring what we know about violent protest has left us in a situation where we basically leave people to, um, to be vulnerable to the, the even greater violence that sometimes follows. Yeah, and for those of us who are not in the position of uh, the oppression that the cold people experience, you know, we become complicit, we become dependent, on these, you know, systems. Uh, so, so much to, you know, to learn and to take away from your book. Uh, one question I did have, and I don't know if you want to answer it or if you want to tease that people just get the book and, <laughs> and learn, but yeah. yeah, what's going on with Freedomville today? So it's, you know, it's, it's been like a sort of a series of return visits where I see their um, experiences change pretty rapidly. So the first time I went back was in 2014 and they were still fighting to try to get someone in office uh, in the, the, like the town, uh, the village heads office uh, that was from their community. Um, but they had, the people of, of Freedomville had really been cut off. They, they were about to lose the lease. The lease was only like five years for their, for their land. Or was it, 10 years? it must've been 10 years. So they had a 10 year lease on the, the rock quarry that was about to not be renewed. They were, um, they had not gotten electricity, whereas people around them had gotten electricity. There were a lot of things that they weren't getting access to because they were still being held responsible for this, uh, this violence. But then I went back in 2018 and 2019 and some things have really changed, not necessarily for the better, but very different circumstances were happening. So they lost the lease to their land and a lot of other people had lost the leases to their rock quarries who had fought in that early 2000 period to get their own rights to land. But the landholders had also kind of lost their land because what had happened was massive corporations had come in and started digging those rocks. And these are some of the wealthiest corporations in India. And they were, they were mining these, what used to be just, low pits in the ground, they were mining massive, like seven story pits. And the work that someone could do over the course of years, like a community could do over the course of years, this company was doing in the, in a couple of months and digging, digging massive pits in the ground, leaving even the land holding community with land that was completely decimated, that no longer could make them any money. And strangely, there were some actual collaborations, not a lot. It's not a story that's like rah, rah, now everybody gets along. It's, it's not that neat. It's not that the world doesn't work that way. But there had been a couple of protests in which the landholding people and the, um, the, the coal people had gotten together and marched and protested against the massive corporations. Um, and what we see in the, the last 20 years in, in India is definitely a shift away from just all out enslavement and debt bondage where people simply can't walk away from their, their work and, and never get paid to a system whereby um, people are free to come and go, but there aren't many options. The, the minimum wage is still not enough. 
But, you know, farmers and rock quarry owners, landholders, they've got a different outlook. There is a shift uh, in a younger generation of people who think, of course, we pay people. We just don't pay them much. And maybe we take a little off the top. And, you know, um, so there's still exploitation of the workers. And but now there's this massive move to um, to sort of to incorporate uh, Adivasi people into uh, sort of a Hindu nationalism that will allow the current government, the Modi government, to stay in power. And so there have been all these promises to them about getting their land back and getting entitlements and being able to hold office and things like that, that are again being broken. And that are, that, you know, they've, as you know, there've been, um, there've been, months of farmers protests across India. And this is this is also a result of these promises that have been made to the poorest of the people in India who are still not seeing any of those promises being kept and who are still dispossessed. So maybe they're not enslaved, but the massive changes that are going on in India that are supposedly uh, meant to help the poorest of the poor there are in fact leaving them behind again. When we learn the history of the uh, the institution of slavery in the United States, part of that we always learn about is the role of religion and uh, bo- on both sides, right? And uh, the slave owners, as well as and and it being used to enforce the system, as well as people who were inspired by the, often the same religion to violently, if necessary, oppose slavery. What India is, I don't know if it's the most, but it's one of the most. Uh, multi-religious countries in the world. What role did religion play uh, in Freedomville, the surrounding area? That's an interesting question. I'll be honest and say that I don't have a total grip on on how religion plays out. There, you know, I didn't get the sense that um, that the the people in this particular community were particularly religious. Um, they, you know, they have festivals and and things like that. They participated in in you know like singing and dancing for things like that. But they didn't identify in in any way that was particularly religious. And they also didn't necessarily identify as Hindu. Um, and there's this kind of a strange um, history, not strange, there is a history of, um, of people who are uh, Adivasi or Dalit, who are on the margins of, of, of Indian society, being co-opted by Hindu politicians to be a part of their voting bloc. And that was working. That was happening within this area as well, like people trying to win their votes over. So religion, what we consider religion as a political um, strategy, that was in in effect there. But I don't know... um, yeah. So I, I, I mean, I would, I would kind of put it that way. I think that a lot of times we think of, of religion in the U S as, as a, as a practice and not an identity. And I think there's a lot more, um, a lot more of that identity driven thinking about Hinduism and, and, and uh, Islam in India. I kept thinking as I was reading this book that there's so much to learn from it and there's so much to take away and there's so much that I can apply, you know, even here in the United States and um, especially speaking up for many marginalized communities who are continually 
uh, oppressed. Um, and so the question goes back to you. What do you think is the biggest thing that we can learn, especially if we're truly understanding, adequately understanding, you know, like uh, the, the history and what happened to the coal people in Freedomville? What can we learn from what happened in Freedomville? Yeah, I, for me, I think the most important thing is to recognize the um, the the rationality of, of violent protest and to apply that in our thinking anytime we see protests happening around the world that we that we and, you know, in the U.S. included, that we don't sort of set aside uh, violent protest as an anomaly or as somehow uh, or a problematic response, but but a, a completely to understand it as a completely rational response to, you know, transgenerational violence and to understand that if we if we if we come to terms with the 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 fact of violence, everyday violence for the most uh, if, the most marginalized people in our society, if we truly uh, want to address it, we have to address um, systemic problems that make everyday violence possible. The way we allow certain people to enact violence and uh, and and completely condemn other people for it, and and to really look at at the roots, the cultural roots of how we we you know we separate people like you know the the coal people understanding themselves to be subservient and and people thinking you know they are subservient the land holding caste believing they are subservient dealing with those cultural um uh the deeply discriminatory understandings um starting there and reaching all the way to addressing the aftermaths when when we aren't able to address the precursors of the violence to really looking at that violence and saying okay we know that what's likely to happen is a, a violent backlash how do we stave that off how do we um how do we stop those in power from using this protest against the people? Um, how do we change our own language so that we don't come out and say, uh, you know, I understand how they feel, but they really shouldn't be, you know, responding in this way. Um, all of that, I think we, all of that we can learn from Freedomville, really addressing it at, from, you know, from the precursors of the violence all the way through the aftermath of the violence is critical. Um, and I, you know, I don't see that happening even as we, we, become uh, ostensibly, uh, you know, a society that is, is more engaged in rights and, um, and racial justice. I was just going to add everything you had just said. I'm thinking about the people of Afghanistan. Um, yeah. John? Uh, before the program, we talked about something that I want to bring into the program, and, and I think it ties into so much of your approach in what you've talked about today, as well as the book itself. And that is referring to someone who's doing slave labor as a slave or as an enslaved person. And you were very clear about how, how the, the terminology you used. So I wonder if you could kind of share with our viewers why you do it that way and why it's important. Sure. I think that there are two pieces of that. One is the use of the word slavery at all um, in describing contemporary experiences. There are some people um, who I very much respect who who are very reticent to use slavery to describe anything outside of the American context of the 19th century. And I, I, I understand that um, 
that logic, I do. I, I, I think that a lot of people recognize that the situation in the United States in the 19th century was one of the most horrific um, uh, articulations of slavery in human history. And the legacy of that slavery still exists today. And I think that a lot of people who work on anti-slavery and anti-trafficking sort of set aside their complicity in um, race relations today. They kind of set aside historical slavery and and don't really want to address that. Um, And in fact, repeat some of the same problematic ways of thinking um, as, well, not the slaves, but you know, they have really problematic racial perspectives. And so I get it that people are sort of reticent to think about slavery as a term that we want to apply to anything else. Um, But, you know, slavery is, existed for all of human history and in all kinds of contexts. People who've been enslaved have had all kinds of different experiences, including people who were allowed to become like royalty after having been enslaved. So there's, there's a a wide variety of things. And I think there's a real importance to using the word slavery um, with its extraordinary gravity and with real precision when we're talking about people who are forced to work against their will. Right. Um, And so I use this word very carefully uh, and I don't use it metaphorically. You know, I don't say that teacher was a slave driver or some ridiculous thing like that. I I don't, I think that's super problematic. Um, And I don't use it to talk about people who have had bad jobs. You know, I, you know, that's not the same thing as what I'm talking about here, but I do think it's important that we use the word precisely um, so that we know we're, we're looking at something that, um, that has systemic roots that is rooted in, in capitalism is rooted in the history of capitalism. And that is, that is related to legacies of historical and racial violence that we need to address still. Um, But, you know, one of the things that, that people who study slavery uh, think about is how to talk about slavery without removing the agency entirely of the people who've been enslaved. And so one of the ways we do that is by, you know, saying, you know, an enslaved person or a person who's been enslaved rather than saying slaves, you know, and you know, still historians of slavery will talk about slaves um, as a group or, uh, you know, like as an identity. But slavery is not an identity. Slavery is a thing that happens to a person. Slavery is a thing that a person can fight back against. Um, and so I will use enslaved as an adjective, but not as the noun to describe the person. Um, and so, so, you know, a lot of people are careful about that. There are probably ways that I, you know, in 10 years, I'll think the way I'm describing this still hasn't um, grasped or really grappled with some of the problems of the way we think about slavery in the world or the way we think about race or the history of slavery. Um, and I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly changing the way I think and the way I understand um, slavery and agency and life and human identity and, and these things. Um, so there's probably some some way I'm still doing it wrong and I'm, I'm constantly trying to learn. But this is one of the things that I think foundationally we have to shift is, is thinking about. And that Freedomville teaches us, honestly, is that people who are enslaved have agency, have ways of thinking about their lives, um, uh, have different perspectives that might might not value the freedom that you value or value it in the same way, might have reticence to experience the things you've experienced, um, you know, and might might have different ideas about what constitutes protest and rights and things like that. And so um, always trying to be open to those new ways of thinking and to, to really learning from the people um, with whom I interact in this research. It's been an incredible hour discussing Freedomville. Thank you so much for this book. Very last question and very quick. Um, So when's the next book out and what's it going to be about? 
Uh, you know, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I'd like to know, uh, (laughs) (laughs) if you have any suggestions, I'm interested. No, um, right now I'm not working on a book, uh, per se. I am working on, uh, forced labor in, uh, Xinjiang, China, in far Western China, where, uh, you know, upwards of 2 million people are being forced to work to produce the shirts and clothes, uh, and, and electronics and tomato paste that we consume all over the world. And so I've, I'm working on a series of reports that help to, uh, I, can't, I can't go to Xinjiang anymore. I, I lived there for a short time, um, but I, I can't go there anymore to talk to people because it's extremely dangerous to them and to, to people who visit. And so, um, so I've been working with supply chain researchers to better understand how the system of forced labor is working there, um, to help help governments and companies understand how the system of forced labor is working there, and to trace supply chains out of Xinjiang and into our closets. So um, I recently had a report on uh, the solar energy industry and how uh, forced labor is being used to produce solar panels. It's I want to say right now I'm pro-renewable energy and I think we all need to use it, but we need to figure out how to do that without um, without it being based on forced labor. So thinking about how to extricate our supply chains from these massive systems of forced labor is what I'm obsessed with right now. And it may or may not turn into a book, but right now that's what I'm doing. Thank you so much for all your work. If you haven't done so, you should pick up a copy of Freedomville, a 21st century slave revolt in India by Dr. Laura T. Murphy. Laura, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. This was a really great conversation. I'll be happy to talk to you guys anytime. This was fun. Back to you, John. Just our thanks again to Dr. Laura Murphy for joining us at the Commonwealth Club. Hope we can see you here in person someday in San Francisco. But until that happens, everyone can find this program and upcoming programs and, of course, video and podcasts of thousands of past programs at commonwealthclub.org. So... Take care, stay safe, and see you in the future.